Hey there. Welcome to the fifth episode of season two of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie. And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. On today's episode, we're speaking with Dr. John Flaherty, an infectious disease expert and professor of medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Now more than ever, it's important that we take care of ourselves and understand how and why we get sick. Keep listening to build a better immune system now and for years to come. Let's get after it. Dr. John Flaherty was raised on the north side of Chicago and went to high school just a few blocks from Northwestern Memorial Hospital, where he works today. Dr. Flaherty graduated from the University of Notre Dame, then medical school at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He trained in internal medicine at the University of Iowa and infectious diseases at the University of Chicago, where he stayed on the faculty for the next 13 plus years before being recruited to come to Northwestern 20 years ago. Dr. Flaherty is a clinician educator. His passions are clinical infectious diseases and teaching. He has served as the Infectious Disease Fellowship Program Director at Feinberg for the past 20 years, and then the five before that at U of C. He is married to Patty, has five grown children and six grandchildren. He also has a vocation in music. He plays guitar in a couple of jazz rock fusion bands. Dr. Flaherty, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm so excited to have a fellow diehard Midwesterner on the show. This is awesome. I also grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, um, attended Northwestern, and I'm now at the University of Chicago. So I'm glad I'm not the only one who can't seem to <laughs> can't seem to leave. Yes, I love it. There's really nothing like the Midwest, to be honest. Oh, absolutely not. Let's just let's get right into it. Today's episode is on the immune system and immunity, and there's a couple different buckets: innate immunity adaptive immunity. Those can be further subdivided. Innate immunity is things that you're you're sort of born with. You have things both in your blood as well as some physical barriers like mucosa throughout your body, um, in your lungs, in your nasal passages. There's plenty of these things you're born with and kind of develop over your childhood. But then there's also adaptive immunity, which is where we hear about T cells and B cells and all of that stuff where you are able to build immune defenses to various organisms and infectious diseases that you encounter anywhere from shortly after birth through today, really, wherever you are currently. And that's just where I wanted to start. So when we think of adaptive immunity and building an immune response, can you run us through how our bodies do that? just from a bird's eye view. Sure. Well, our immune system is sort of designed to distinguish foreign from native. So we're sort of, we sort of develop kind of recognizing ourselves and then everything, not ourselves, you know, we're designed to identify and, and probably, you know, reject, destroy if we can. And so it's, it's a, it's a matter of the immune system kind of recognizing antigens, epitopes, and sort of looking at them. And if they don't belong, then they get processed a couple of different ways, you know, right? So you get the, the T cell response, which may be an, you know, an active cytotoxic killer response or, you know, presenting those antigens then to, to other T cells, you know, to go to work on. And then you got antigens being presented 
to B cells to, to make antibody. So you, so you got these humoral, these sort of, you know, in the, you know, humors in the, in the serum, you got the proteins designed to identify and bind to these foreign antigens. And then you got cells cruising around again, looking for these foreign invaders and designed to kind of knock them out. Right. So the T cell, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but the T cells are, the killer T cells at least are kind of our first line adaptive defense against these new or foreign bodies. And then B cells have more of that memory aspect to it. And they can, they store that the specific antibody to the antigens that we see. Right. Right. So that the, the B cells are kind of, they're sort of programmed to then respond with a big time response next time around. Right. So you get a little bit of an, you know, antibody response with the first exposure and they may help. They probably help us deal with some infections in the short term, but um, they're really advantageous later on when you're exposed to that antigen, that microorganism the next time, then you get this sort of anamnestic response, this sort of really big booster response. And that's, you know, the whole, the whole design be, behind, you know, for example, vaccines that that are designed to elicit an antibody response. It's that the next time you see that, that antigen, then you're gonna get a big burst in antibody production because you got these memory B cells hanging around. They're already pre- pre-programmed to make antibody. So I wanna talk about antibodies a little bit more. I feel like they're a really hot topic in, in society and in the news. Of course, we can't have a podcast episode about immunity without eventually bringing up COVID-19, but we'll get there. But you know, they're equally a, a really big and interesting topic in research. So that's kind of the perspective I have on all this. But before we dive into the interesting parts and the interesting functions of antibodies, how how do we create antibodies and what actually makes up the antibody itself? So there are different kinds of antibodies, right? There's IgG, IgM, IgA, and they function slightly differently. With our first exposure to an antigen, early on you get an IgM response. And then as the response matures, then you develop an IgG response. Uh, IgA is found on mucosal surfaces. So it has sort of a a particular focus of where that functions. I think for the most part, when we're thinking about antibody responses, we're we're, we're focused on IgM and IgG. IgM being, you know, again, the early response. It's helpful diagnostically. We can measure IgM and that usually correlates with an early or re- very recent or even acute kind of infection or exposure, then IgG, it's hard to tell. I mean, the IgG will be present within say 10, 14 days of exposure and then then remain present thereafter. Sometimes you can tell from the, from the magnitude of the IgG response. So if you have a big time IgG response, then this may be a re-exposure to that pathogen, for example, but it's, and it's certainly not, you know, maybe not a recent infection. And, and IgM is sort of the, the reverse, you know, I mean, if it's a, it's a big time IgM response, that implies that it's a very recent infection. Although there are, there are, there are examples where people can, their IgM, they'll get IgM again with, uh, and it's not an acute infection. So that's not, it's not hard and fast. We'll see people with herpes virus infections, for example, that, well, their IgM will come back again. I mean, if they've had maybe herpes simplex since they were a child, and then sometimes the immune system kind of gets revved up maybe exposure to an alternate herpes virus, and then they'll get some IgM coming back to the herpes simplex virus, which they've had for a long time. 
So that is just one of, you know, these IgMs and these IgGs that we can measure are just one of the different quantifiable parts of an immune response that we have. And there are a lot of other things going on in our body when we have an immune response. Obviously, it differs based on what kind of pathogen we were exposed to, whether it is our first or second. But we hear a lot about inflammation and a lot about autoimmune disorders and you know, in just in general, why having prolonged immune responses is a problem. Can you kind of just touch on what other markers circulate through the body or are really involved in these immune responses? And why is it that it is actually harmful to our body to have a prolonged immune response? Because it seems pretty counterintuitive. Right. Well, I think like anything, you know, everything in moderation. So the, the immune response is, uh, is a defense system for the body. So part of that is recognizing the foreign invaders and then destroying them via inflammation. And so you want to be careful. You want to, you want to sort of knock out the stuff you don't want, but you don't want to overdo it. Um, it's, it's complicated further by the fact that many uh, microorganisms inhabit our bodies that are, that are normal, that are important, they're necessary. They, they need to be there. They you know, we've evolved with them over the millennia and uh, we don't want to get rid of those. I mean, it's sometimes when I, when I see stuff on TV about how antibacterial soap and, and how important it is to be sterile. No, 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 no. That's overkill. A tiny proportion of the microorganisms that we're exposed to are pathogenic. The rest are normal. I mean, they're part of us. We're, you know, in some respects, we're more microorganism genes than we are human genes, right? I mean, because there are just literally thousands of different species of bacteria and protozoa and fungi and archaea, not to even mention viruses. I mean, how many different viruses inhabit our bodies that don't really cause us any problems? So it's, it's a select number that do. And our immune system learns to function with those from probably in utero, we're probably being exposed to some mi- microorganisms. There's evidence that that microorganisms are colonizing our organs in fetal form, you know, as the biliary tract is developing, there are already microorganisms in the biliary tract. We used to think that the womb was sterile, but it's probably not because we are microorganisms in our body. And they're anyway, all that to say that a lot of these organisms are normal. Most of them are normal. Our immune systems need to recognize the normal and then balance killing off the bad stuff and maintaining the good stuff and not overreacting. But it's, a, it's so wildly complex that, you know, that they can even recognize what's foreign and not, that you can see where sometimes mistakes are made. And then our body may recognize a self-antigen as foreign and cause inflammation. I mean, it's, it's recognizing maybe part of our body as being, that shouldn't be there. Oh, it should be there. It doesn't, you know, it's sort of friendly fire, right? And so you end up getting inflammation, destruction, damage to tissues because the immune system's recognizing some antigen as foreign when it's really not. Yeah, so I guess there is something to be said about getting your hands dirty, playing in the dirt as a kid uh, as you're developing that immune system. I'm a believer in that, in the hygiene hypothesis, right? You've heard that, right? So send your kids out and play in the sandbox and get them a dog and, you know, give them peanut butter when they're young. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) I'm a believer in that. I love that you brought up the gut microbiome. I can't remember how exactly this was phrased. I can't remember the exact quantification of this, but essentially if you took the genetic information of every gut microbiome organism and 
combine that compared to the human genome, it, it's longer, something like that. It's, it's something about how there actually are more genetic components of non-human within a human. I, I can't remember, again, I'm, I'm totally misphrasing this, but it was actually really remarkable to read that and hear about that. And it really is fascinating that we have all that going on and that there aren't more mistakes, right? I think that's that's my favorite part about learning about science and learning about biology is it is so intricate and, and so well designed that the fact that there aren't more mistakes really is remarkable. It continues to blow my mind on a daily basis. It really is. The specificity, it's so complex, the immune system, and the fact that it can you know initiate recognizing what's self, what isn't, and generate these immune responses in such a, not only say factory line, but in such a efficient efficient way. Yeah, it's mind boggling. It's, um, and I can tell you, as I was in medical school a long time ago, and immunology is so much more complicated. I mean, the level of detail that we understand today is so advanced over what we understood back 40 years ago. And we have a long ways to go. But yeah, I mean, the field has kind of exploded over the last few decades. It's just incredible. It makes being a student now really (laughs) all the more interesting and challenging. (laughs) But the other, I think, phenomenon of, of science and of fields like this are that I find captivating is how much is left to be found out. I think that's equally exciting and perhaps a little scary, especially in a year like we've been put through as a planet, really. Um, so I think that leads to the inevitable and unavoidable discussion about COVID-19 that was going to come up in this <laughs> in this episode. Right. So coronaviruses themselves aren't something that are, that's new. There's been MERS. There's been, I think, a different SARS correct that's been SARS I think in 2009 I might be misremembering that but I think there was a SARS I don't think it ever became a pandemic it might have been an epidemic right so the first SARS epidemic so uh, it seemed to emerge in Asia spread to Canada Uh, there were almost no cases in the U.S. Uh, but it was pretty scary at the time it was a fairly high mortality rate and it sort of captured the world's attention they sort of locked everything down and that seemed to work. And so we didn't really have to deal with it here in the US, but it was kind of scary. And, and that, was, that was the first severe, you know, SARS-like coronavirus, but we had other coronaviruses. So there are other human coronaviruses. That we believe these are largely bad viruses. So there were at least four other coronaviruses that had been identified prior to that. And then MERS, the Middle East Respiratory syndrome was the next one. And uh, again, very few cases here in the US and it's been fairly limited. So we knew this was gonna happen again. There was no doubt that we are gonna get more coronaviruses. I don't know that anybody in their fevered imagination would have imagined that it would be this bad. I don't think, I certainly didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely didn't, but from either a genomic perspective or from some epidemiological perspective, what makes this coronavirus so much different from the other ones that were largely like we're able to contain? 
you know, I think th this one um, has a little had a little more affinity for the the angiotensin converting enzyme two receptor. It just happened to be a little bit more transmissible. I mean, it's very closely related to both the SARS coronavirus and the MERS coronavirus. And, and there were people years ago who were predicting that there will be more of these. And there are more out there. There's a whole kind of library of bad coronaviruses that fall into this family. So I would not be surprised if we had another one some years down the line. I mean, if, and if you look at the pace of this, they've been coming more frequently in recent years. So kind of from a very simple basic science perspective, a virus is an antigen, it's a foreign body, right? And so much of the problem and, and a difficulty in even like the pharmaceutical industry is making things cell permeable, getting things into our systems. And it's actually a difficulty for a lot of people who are trying to make good products and products that we want going into our bodies is that we can't seem to get them to be taken up by human cells and by human systems and by living, breathing creatures. So what is it about a virus that actually is the opposite, right? I mean, it's so easy, so transmissible, like you said, that it it has the machinery. What, what, what is that machinery and, and why can a virus so easily enter our system and start messing with our, our body? There are probably, um, I couldn't even put a number on the number of viruses that are out there in the world <laughs> and that don't cause disease. So some of it's just luck. For example, this one, the spike protein happens to bind effectively to the ACE2 receptor, which is prevalent on respiratory epithelial cells, you know, the lining of the, the nose and the mouth and the, and the lungs, and also present on a variety of other cells throughout the body. So why is that? I, I think that's just rotten luck. There's so many other viruses out there. I mean, if, if you scoop up a, you know, a handful of dirt, they're going to be I don't know, millions, billions of viruses in there, you know, virions for sure. But, you know, there's so many viruses that we probably haven't even like identified them. And so it's, it's sort of a unique virus that actually causes disease. I mean, we, we talk about there are many viral diseases. I know, uh, Drew, you probably when you were taking Foundations 3, you saw it, oh my God, there's so many viruses. But uh, in the context of how many viruses there are in the universe, you know, there's not many viruses that cause significant disease in humans. So sometimes I think it's just dumb luck. At least they didn't make you memorize all the, the non-infectious, non-problematic non viruses. Oh, they, they made it easy on you guys. Yeah, they took it easy <laughs> on us. It was mind-boggling. There was just one after another. You know, We learned about the coronavirus, then we learned about flu, then about herpes, then about the cytomegalovirus. It just keeps going and going and going. And yeah, I was like, well, is, there gonna, is there an end to this list? No. Um, <laughs> the, the whole concept of a virus when I really kind of sit down and think about it, is really fascinating to me. The fact that these things exist and function as something that is still reliant on, you know, a host to replicate. Are there any self-replicating viruses? Gosh, I hope not. No. Not that we know of. <sighs> okay. <laughs> and that's the fact that that exists. It's so, so many other aspects of evolution and aspects of how organisms kind of came to be make sense. You can kind of logic through it, but viruses just don't make sense. You know, you have this self-contained core clump of proteins and genetic material that just somehow kind of sometimes will make its way into a host and it'll replicate and sometimes that's okay and sometimes it causes all these crazy problems. And when you try to think about it, it is pretty pretty difficult to wrap your head around. One of the ways that I think about it is that if you, if you look at the viruses 
for example, let's take viruses, that cause disease in humans, they're largely zoonoses. They're, they're largely animal viruses that recently got into humans. If you look at avian influenza, I mean, the coronaviruses, I mean, rabies. Uh, swine flu, I mean, right? Was that another swine one? Swine flu, yes, yeah. yes. Those are, they're adapted for other hosts. And if you look in those other hosts, like if you look at SARS coronavirus, COVID-2 in bats, as far as we know, it doesn't make the bats sick. The bats have evolved with this. Maybe it made them sick when they first acquired this virus, but now they've learned to live with it. It's when it enters a new population, a new species like Homo sapiens, that it causes big problems. That's true for a whole, whole range of viruses, that it's when they first enter humans, they start to cause problems. Because in a sense, it's not in the virus's best interest to kill the host. Right. Just wants to keep them alive long <laughs> enough to replicate and- you Want to replicate and move on. And you know they'd rather cause chronic infection than just keep replicating. Yes, that's why that, I mean, if you're looking at where, the, where future viruses emerging, look to the animals. That's where they're coming from. Because they, they've already kind of taken a step to being able to replicate in other mammals. And now they're going to, you know, take a step up and, and get, you know, jump into humans. So viruses, like every other organism, evolve and change, grow, adapt. And I know in the flu, you know, every year we get a new flu shot because there's a new like recombination of the genetic material within the influenza virus. Is there any similarities from the influenza virus to the coronavirus in terms of the ability to rearrange their genome at all? Or if not, how is coronavirus going to make its next set of adaptations to survive? So there are similarities. They're, they're both RNA viruses. And RNA viruses, as a rule, do not proofread their work. So they, they make errors as they're replicating. Some of those will result in, in sort of non-functional virions, and they just kind of die out. And some of those will result in changes in the virus. And some of those will be changes in the surface code of the virus. So it can result in immune escape. Uh, some of those will result in drug resistance if we have antiviral drugs. Um, so there are similarities. The, Coronavirus is actually a big RNA virus in terms of genome. So it does have a proofreading function, which is a little bit unusual for RNA viruses. So there is an element of proofreading. Nevertheless, it does mutate. It also has a capacity to recombine. You know, so if you get somebody's infected with two different coronaviruses, they can actually swap out parts of their genome. And that's the driver of pandemic influenza too, right? Because in influenza, is a segmented RNA genome, and it can mix and match these different parts, which is why you get the most recent swine flu virus was actually components of human, swine, and avian influenza, which had all kind of mixed and matched and came up with a, you know, it was still an H1N1, and we've had H1N1 for a while, but it was a different H1N1 because the segments were different. So there, are, there is an overlap there between influenza and coronavirus. And what, what you see with coronavirus now, you hear about the South African and the, the different strains, the new mutations. It's mutating pretty much constantly. Um, it's not mutating as fast as influenza, but it's mutating. And it does have this capacity to recombine. The major concern is probably the spike protein. That's got a lot of attention now because 
as mutations occur in the spike protein, are they gonna be enough that then the antibody elicited by the vaccine isn't gonna work? You know, is the spike protein gonna be different enough that our antibodies won't recognize that new spike protein? The preliminary evidence is, looks like the vaccines still work, but this is a very fluid process where, you know, this is changing. So that, that, that's generated a certain amount of anxiety like, uh, like, let's get this going, get people vaccinated to try and blunt this because of the longer we let this pandemic go wild, the, the more mutations we're gonna get and the potential for escape variants is gonna emerge. We actually read a really fascinating paper, I think in the early fall, mid fall, about you know a group had finally kind of sequenced and figured out how the genome of COVID-19 works. And it was a lot about kind of the recombination capacity and the unexpected presence of proofreading systems. And it was a little scary. And I kind of read this and I was like, gosh, that means it can just mutate kind of as it pleases. And here we are a couple months later, it has done exactly (laughs) what I was afraid of, unfortunately. But as I read about these variants, the first question that came to my mind was, if the mutations are in the spike protein, how will that affect the the vaccine's efficiency or efficacy because antibodies are are so well known to be extraordinarily specific, right? So my thought was if you switch out a single amino acid, a single, you know, component of the protein, in what situation would that not be a big enough change? Like if, if it's a conserved mutation, if the properties of that amino acid as it is mutated are somewhat conserved, is that when the antibody might kind of still be able to recognize? How sensitive are these systems? I, th- I think it's a function of where that mutation occurs almost in 3D. So, you know, does it impact the binding site to the antibody? The antibodies don't recognize the whole spike protein. They recognize part of the spike protein. You could have mutations in the spike protein and it be away from, hidden from view, for example, from the antibody. But if you get one in a critical spot, it's a matter of degree. So maybe the, the binding affinity will be diminished somewhat. So then, okay, then won't kind of work quite as well. We can see what happens with with certain single amino acid mutations where it completely alters the structure of a protein. And so you can imagine if you get one in the right spot, but if you get one that that changes the spike protein enough, maybe that virion is no longer infectious, right? Because you need the spike protein to bind to the ACE2 receptor. So the virus would love to escape any immune response, but it can't go too far because then it maybe it'll lose an affinity for the epithelial cell receptor. I wish this is moments like this. I wish we almost had a way to add visuals to our podcast because this sort of stuff is so much easier to visualize than to to kind of talk about and explain. I love this kind of stuff. I love I love thinking about like mutations and and structure and interactions between things in the body. Um, so I'm gonna kind of backpedal away from from my biochemistry land and kind of go big picture again because we've talked a little bit about the vaccine and the antibodies and kind of the goal of most vaccines is to prepare our bodies to then in the future already have an immune response prepared so that we don't feel sick if if we're infected with a virus. So can we talk a little bit about how the COVID vaccine works? You know, there's different types of vaccines just in the body. What's going on when this is administered? Right. So, so the Moderna and the Pfizer RNA vaccines are extraordinary. I think that's the most exciting thing that I've seen in years, you know, in at least in infectious diseases. I'm the proud recipient of two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. I'm very excited about that. It's amazing. I mean, so, I mean, I, th- I think the technology behind this is just, just mind boggling. So, so they're taking this segment of 
RNA that only corresponds to the spike protein. They package it in a lipid nanoparticle. Like that's so amazing, right? Because our, so our, cell, our cells are lipid membranes. So you get a lipid nanoparticle. So it, it just melds, kind of binds to, gets intercalated, gets you know endocytosis into the cell. And then you got this naked RNA hanging out in the cytoplasm of the cell and your ribosomes just go, yeah, let's, let's translate <laughs> this, this RNA. And they start making protein. And then the, those proteins show up on the surface of your cell. The cell dies and then it releases more of those, these proteins, you know, the spike proteins and your body goes, these spike, spike proteins aren't supposed to be here. And they start reacting to it. The fact that that works is just amazing to me that they were able to, you know, come up with a system that delivers messenger RNA and plugs it into the cell and it goes, it just happens. I mean, it's a feature of single strand positive RNA vac uh, viruses, right? That's, that's kind of how they work. Is that the virus kind of binds to the cell surface, enters and right away gets translated from an RNA, genomic RNA into a polyprotein um, without, doesn't have to you know, undergo any other kind of revision. And so this is a single strand positive RNA virus. And we were able to sort of co-opt that system by just giving just a little bit of the virus genome um, instead of the whole thing. And the fact that that works and it's 95% effective is just amazing. So I'm actually so excited that we're, we're talking about this because, so I work on fusion proteins, which essentially means that we're creating these recombinant vectors and we have to somehow get that vector, that genetic material into a bacterial cell. And we actually use the same technique. We use lipid nanoparticles. After we create our fusion vector, that's how we get it in to the bacteria that we work with. So the grad student who's my mentor right now, we were actually talking about how it's the same technology that's in the vaccine, which is pretty cool. Not as, uh, you know, my fusion proteins are a little bit less exciting than the COVID-19 vaccine, but you know, <laughs> I'll have my moment one day, maybe. So as you were describing this system, I was one, just enamored by it. But two, curious as to if there's another vaccine that exists that has used this system before, or is this like the first time that there's a vaccine out there for anything that uses this system? As far as I know, this is the first vaccine that uses this system. So the fact that it came now is just really kind of amazing. I feel like nanoparticles are kind of, kind of like antibodies. They're a buzzword. You know, it's one of those things where they're becoming more and more useful because the like the clunkier thing you're trying to get into a cell, the more difficult of a time you're going to have. The more barriers, yeah. The more barriers you're dealing with. So I was so excited. I was really excited to hear about how, how it actually worked because it seems so simple, right? I mean, duh, you're going to put it in a, in a lipid nanoparticle because it's kind of, you know, it just, it seems so obvious, right? But until you have to sit down and, and kind of deal with these problems and come up with solutions, the those simple and kind of, seemingly obvious solutions aren't really so obvious, especially when there's such a pressure, right, to kind of make this work. So the fact that they were able to do it with a new technology under such limited time, under so much pressure, is actually, I think, that that in and of itself is remarkable, you know, and the fact that it, it works. Yeah, when quite literally the whole world's just sitting inside <laughs> waiting for you to come up with this vaccine. Oh, of course, I'm going to pull that off. Crazy. Well, um, so I guess I kind of want to end on like a very big picture question because eventually this pandemic will end, God willing, and we'll kind of go back to some iteration of a normal life. But we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, um, you know, building immunity, especially in children, right? Kind of having this 
sensible exposure to different pathogens and antigens that just exist that are kind of unavoidable in <laughs> on planet earth what things can people do and or what kind of very basic lifestyle choices can people make that just in general are going to strengthen their immune system whether it be a day-to-day sort of thing just what what should people be doing to set themselves up for the healthiest life they can possibly have wow yeah that is that's an interesting question i mean I'm unaware of anything in terms of like a supplement or, you know, people ask me, should I be taking vitamin C or vitamin B12? Unless you have a vitamin deficiency, I'm, I'm really not aware of, you know, of any particular supplements that are going to help your immune system. Good nutrition, exercise, rest, you know, avoid, you know, too much alcohol, don't smoke and, and, and probably get out there and sort of expose yourself to some antigens from time to time. Yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I, you know, people ask me that all the time, how can I build up my immune system? And aside from sort of like living healthy, which is, sounds kind of vague, but we all kind of know what that means, you know, right. try and eat as, 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 you know, as little unprocessed, you know, foods as you can and get exercise and sleep, you know, get a regular sleep cycle and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we know that stress knocks down the immune system. So people that are, oh, yeah. you know, that's, that are stressed are more at risk to develop viral respiratory infections. So that's the double whammy of the COVID era, right? We're all stressed out and there's this killer virus, you know, cruising around. So it is, I think it is important to try and li- live as stress-free a life as you can and live well, but this idea of like antibacterial soaps, like, uh, you know, I mean, wash your hands if they're dirty, be careful about touching stuff and putting your hands in your mouth and nose and eyes. Um, that's how, probably how we can, you know, get some of these respiratory viruses in our system. But yeah, I, I, beyond that, I can't offer any sort of specifics like magic bullet to help your immune system. I wish I could. There very rarely exists a magic pill or the, you know, the the single beautiful, elegant, simple solution to any, <laughs> any, especially medical and health problems. You know, it would be really nice if it worked that way, but it's always a little bit more complicated than that. But the good news is it kind of comes down to the basic building blocks, right? Of overall wellness. Which is kind of good in a way, because if you try to live and lead a healthy life, there's going to be all these benefits, not just in one bucket, but in many. So you know, there's pros and cons to each. Yeah, absolutely. You hit, you hit all the birds with one stone all of them every single one <laughs> my favorite stone to be hit though is to relax so that's that's the stone i'm gonna work on hitting with my bird i don't even Wait, that, that was that was bad <laughs> no one stone that, that's the bird i'm gonna hit with my stone there you go there yeah. you go so that's my biggest takeaway is to relax relax i mean i i remember even in college the the times i rarely get sick luckily um I played in a lot of dirt as a kid. I was out and about all the time. So it must have, must have helped because I luckily don't get sick very often. But when I did in, in school, it was always, always, always either midterms week or finals week. Never, Every time. never in between. Every never time. Never at the beginning of the semester, always at the kind of peaks of stress. So that is a big takeaway, especially for all the students out there currently dealing with an upcoming midterm season, online school, and all of the other ridiculousness of this past year. Couldn't put it better myself. Well, Dr. Flaherty, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciated it. And hopefully our listeners will as well. All right, well, thanks guys. Well, you did it again, Liv. Another great interview. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously it was a great interview. Yeah, I mean, you you, you did it. I did it? No, we did it. What are you talking about? Uh, that's true. That's true. What, what really stood out to you? What was your favorite part? I feel like I'm watching Dora the Explorer right now, that they always ask that at the end of the episode. Gosh, I don't know. I think it really is an interesting balance when it comes to immunity, right? Especially when you look at little kids and... I kind of think about my childhood and how much time I spent outside, how much time I spent, you know, just going out and about and playing in the sandboxes, playing in the dirt, playing, you know, outside and playing with other people. You know, I didn't really ever think about it as kind of a means to strengthen my immune system. And obviously, I'm sure there's some level of genetics that kind of play into this sort of thing. But I have a pretty strong immune system. And I do think I kind of credit a lot of factors to that. But I kind of never really thought about how much maybe my childhood played into it. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I really liked how he talked about that, you know, like getting dirty in the sandbox. And what also stood out to me, it was something that I, I didn't really, I don't really think of when I think of viruses all that often, but is a really crucial part. And that aspect is how animals act as like reservoirs, essentially, for these various strains of different viruses that, you know, it only takes one contact with open skin or inhaling something you know, some unsanitary measure and all of a sudden you have a new strain of insert virus here that can lead to a pandemic. Yes, but actually the flip side of that is we also have viruses, right? We have there are there are human specific viruses that can't cross over to animals. There are animal viruses that don't cross over to humans. So it actually is a really, really large stroke of bad luck when an animal virus can actually infect a human. So luckily, you know, most of the time when there is crossover, nothing actually happens because our immune system is designed to fight these things off. So yes, very true. Very true. And I'd be remiss not to talk about our discussion of the mRNA based vaccine and how the different variants of the coronavirus now are interacting with the efficacy of that vaccine. Yeah, I'm not even going to try to dive into that because I would be 100% dishonest if I said I know enough about science to really understand how all that works and especially how all it works in the case of COVID specifically because proteins are so complicated and genetics are so complicated. But talking about this vaccine reminded me of kind of a hot button topic in research for a different disease, cancer, actually, they're working on cancer vaccines that also kind of work by introducing specific antigens for cancer cells. And some of the things they're looking at are potentially using nucleic acids like mRNAs to give people immunity to cancer and strengthen their immune system against cancerous cells. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, well, fingers crossed that something really exciting comes out of there in that field of research as soon as possible. Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? I, I think it really would be. Well, that's all for this week's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find Science and Society. We release new shows every other Monday, so episode six is coming your way on March 22nd. In our next episode, we are bringing on the chemical engineer turned author, Dr. David Adam, to discuss a commonly misunderstood disorder, OCD. And as always, peace, love, and science.